sometimes you don't get to choose who really picks up on your product or service and decides that they're going to roll with it because that also has implications, right? You're not going to necessarily make a decision that you are going to market your products exclusively in one area. Sometimes it just happens for you. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I just want to welcome you to the Kelly family and let you know that we exist to help you. So if you're an organizational leader who's wrestling with a topic of conversation within your team, you're looking for some leadership advice, maybe you're just looking to engage in how to coach, or if you know of an individual who make a great guest for our show, we would always love to hear from you or them. You can send us an email for either of those to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I Again, that's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I edu. Now, as we take a step back and just look at economies around the world, we can see that there's so much merging together. We're becoming more of a globalized economy as we move forward with, you know, digitization of social media, with internet, with all these things that connect us, um, we are starting to see, you know, multinational corporations start to become, uh, you know, very prevalent in this world. In the same way, you know, we have to look at it differently too from the mom and pop level or the small business level because for, let's say, for instance, you have an Etsy hobby and all of a sudden you're based in the United States, for example, and you just have some niche product that has just exploded in Poland, you know, what do you do? I mean, that's your, your product is, is now leaving the country in which you're founded and it's now moving into a totally different country. So even though it, we think about it as, oh, this is really cool. It, there are steps and processes that we need to be aware of to protect ourselves because we want to create success, but we don't want that success taken away because we didn't pay our fair share. We didn't we didn't take into account different tax laws. We didn't take into account, you know, different custom laws that we have to go through. Just a number of things that we just have to think about as we move forward. And that's going to be the focus of our topic today. We're going to talk about international business. How is this looking? What is the global landscape looking like? I'm honored to be joined by the senior lecturer at Kelly School of Business, Katie Metz, who specializes in international taxation. Katie, welcome to the ROI podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So, you know, we kind of set the stage a little bit uh, talking about this idea of globalization and how we need to start reframing just even at a small business level, thinking about what the future is going to look like as products are coming in and out made here in the U.S., but maybe exported. Maybe we're getting products from other countries in here and then sending back out. So let's kind of start at the broad level, you know, talk about you know, what is this globalization starting to look like? How how are we starting to see everything kind of come together globally? Yeah. So one thing that I think is really cool about small businesses right now, there are cool things, even though we're in a pandemic, is that things are so accessible, not just merchandise, of course, which is easily shipped, but, but services as well. And so as that accessibility becomes more prevalent, we're able to contact people in around the world were able to ship 
goods to people around the world. We're able to provide services or receive services from people around the world. It, it gets a little bit complicated by this idea that we have to ensure that we are still paying in some capacity, whether we pay that ourselves or our customers pay it, our fair share of customs, tariffs, taxes in general to the correct people. And so it's so cool that we are so global, that we're becoming so much more globalized, that accessibility is increasing so rapidly. I, I have a couple of students right now who are taking my class completely online and they're not even in the United States right now. I mean, how awesome is that? And yet we have to be conscientious that when we make these moves, especially as a small business, that we understand the, the financial, specifically the tax implications of those moves, especially if we want it to be something that sustains our business. It, one thing to keep in mind, I mean, for there's organizational leaders out there that are like, yeah, right. Like I don't, this doesn't need to make, like, I don't need to pay attention to this. Like I, I just selling here in the United States or, you know, I'm selling in Canada, you know, I'm, I don't plan to go global. Like I have no intentions of being a multinational corporation, you know, like I'm, I'm separate yet. Sometimes we can't control that wherever the demand springs up. And because like you said, the ease of gaining things are, are just, it's becoming easier to get stuff. It does need to begin to be a focus. So talk about, you know, why this is so important for, you know, just any small business, whether they have the intention or not to go global. Sure. So first of all, you hit on something funny. You said, I'm just, I'm just selling in Canada. I'm not even going global. And that's the first misnomer. I think I'm totally picking on you, Matt, but um, Canada is a different country, <laughs> even though it's closer Toronto is closer to us in Indiana here than many states are than, than Disney World, basically, right? Um, so, so when companies are thinking about going global, and, and I guess I'll start off by saying exporting your good or service is the first step in you becoming having a foreign direct investment. So having some sort of stake in a, another jurisdiction, another country's economy, and that there are costs associated with that. And, and one of the most important things that small businesses have to think about, even if you are just considering it or you have one really good client or one really good region of um, a con another country who really enjoys your product or service, is who is going to take on the costs associated with this. Because when you ship your good to that border, that other country, there will be taxes. There will be customs taxes. Um, tariffs would increase just that or decrease depending on the market, depending on the political situation. And you have to understand and kind of have a frame for whether you are going to pay that as the business or whether the customer is going to pay that. So anecdotally, as, as a consumer ourselves, we can think about this from the perspective of maybe there's a, a store online that you really like. I think about clothing a lot. There are a lot of really cool clothing shops in Ireland, like Primark or in the UK who ship goods to you in the US and yet the, the shipping costs are super high or it's going to cost you, you know, a boatload of money for you to get something custom made from Etsy in Canada versus getting that same product in the US. And that's because the seller has to bear some of the cost of international business and they have to make a decision about whether you as the customer are going to take that on or the business itself is going to take that on. So I think this misnomer that there are no consequences aside from, well, shipping is more expensive, it is wrong or is, is misguided because there are additional costs. And sometimes you should on a business, sometimes we'll bear that with, with mixed reactions, I would say. 
You know, but and that brings up an interesting point because I mean, then at the same time, you know, not only are you having the shipping costs and you're having some of those taxes, but then you're also technically making a profit through another organization. I'm sure, you know, obviously if you're selling a few things at 10 bucks, you make a couple hundred bucks. I mean, that's not going to be the end of the world. But when you start getting into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars in sales that start adding up in other countries, I mean, talk about, I mean, what's the implications now that you're having to think about taxation on top of uh, the, the cost of getting the good just to the country? Yeah, so it's really important for you to just understand that there. I think I think for small businesses that there are implications of this that you will have to ask some questions. And I just did a quick search a couple of times over the last few days in preparation for this episode about what those are. And, and what I'm finding is that there is a ton of information on the web with a simple Google search about these issues, and they conflict. So I think that when you are going to to engage in business overseas in whatever capacity that may be, whether you're purchasing goods from overseas to add to your own supply, and that that has costs, of course, associated with, or whether you're selling your own goods or services overseas or receiving them, that there are implications of that. So just sort of writing down what you're doing, how you're doing in what capacity, and if it's big enough to actually have U.S. tax implications or versus it being considered a hobby, or um, if, it, if it is something that, that is more hobby-like. I mean, I think the second thing I guess I'll add to the, the general piece of this, of the, the we don't really get to choose, like you mentioned before, it's about uh, six or seven years ago, there was an interesting statistic, and I cannot find the source right now, that about 70% of Manchester United, this, the football club based in the UK, about 70% of their fans were based in China. Southeast Asia region, but specifically in China. A man United didn't put all of their marketing efforts in China. And yet they had a couple of players who caught the attention of, fa- of general soccer fans in that region and it exploded. So now Manchester United is exporting a ton of merchandise to Southeast Asia and also having to either maintain that fan base or making a decision that they have to change gear. So my point in saying this is that sometimes you don't get to choose who really picks up on your product or service and decides that they're going to roll with it or which um, influencer or mom blog or whatever that may be is going to absolutely run with your idea because that also has implications, right? You're not going to necessarily make a decision that you are going to market your products exclusively in one area. Sometimes it just happens for you. You know, and that and that brings up to the an interesting point. I think uh, I'd like to address is you know kind of where becomes that line where you know this is hey this is no longer like just hobby level. This is no longer like maybe small business level. But now I actually do need to start paying attention. Like I actually do need to start thinking about you know oh I, I'm getting big enough that I'm getting on their government's radar. I'm getting on U.S. government radar as far as taxation or, you know, things of that nature, you know, where, where does that line begin? Like where it's like, okay, now I need to start having a plan. Yeah. So it begins technically when you make a profit really, I guess is where, where it sort of starts. I I don't think many really, really small businesses immediately decide that they're going to have foreign direct investments of any of any variety. But when you do start to make a profit and it can't be considered even as an individual or a sole proprietor as a hobby loss, you really need to start considering the implications of that. Um, in the US, we have a tax 
policy. It's, it's more of a mantra, I would say. I say it all the time. Um, all income from whatever source derived. So no matter where you are making your income, physically based in the U.S. or somewhere else, that income is subject to taxation in the U.S. And there are obviously ways around that in the sense that there are laws and treaties that prevent double taxation, but the U.S. pays a lot of attention to organizations, especially lar larger organizations, granted, who have business overseas, and especially those who have branches overseas, subsidiaries or parent companies overseas. So when you start to think about your business as having a consistent, I guess, international presence somewhere, and that can be in Canada or the U.K., I think that's the time when you really need to start thinking about your long-term strategy, not just with paying taxes, but how you are going to plan your financial reporting and tax situations so that you're maximizing the benefit of your revenue stream, tax liability stream, so that you're not spending more money than you need to, and also obviously to make sure you're following the law, but so that you're maximizing your own potential to make money that way. You know, so how do organizational leaders, I mean, who maybe are at that point, maybe they're realizing coming to this place that they're like, hey, man, like this, this is starting to take off. Like, I do really need to start thinking about uh, what does it look like to uh, engage with uh, the Canadian government now that our business is, you know, really taking off in, in Toronto because there just happens to be this niche, you know, buyer who's, you know, purchasing our material that we produce or, you know. China or wherever, you know, how do organizational leaders, like where do they begin to, to start looking for resources or begin to start, you know, stepping this out so they know that come tax time, whatever country you're in, like they're not going to get, uh, you know, hammered, um, hammered in losses or hammered in unexpected expenditures that they could have prevented, you know, with a, with a little research. Sure. That's a really interesting question. And, and I think it goes two ways. One, and I'm not just saying this because I used to be in the field, it's, it's really true. I, I think it's so important that you have a tax advisor on your team, um, an independent tax advisor. So somebody in the public accounting realm who specializes in international tax, most practitioners who specialize in international accounting or international tax, like I used to, do not necessarily specialize in a specific region, but rather they understand how the U.S. tax and financial reporting law butt up against or meld with, depending on the way we look at it, international law in general. And there are certain guidelines that are relatively standard in other countries, like international financial reporting standards, but how we as um, a U.S.-based company or a company with subsidiaries in the U.S. would interact with just international law in general. And, and I think the reason I say that getting somebody on your team who understands international tax is important is because it's really important to be proactive about the steps you're taking to ensure that you are paying the correct, the, the fair share of taxes to governments on all sides. So this is not a situation where you're interacting directly with the government necessarily, but rather understanding the parameters that you're working with in order to um, plan for a future when you are paying tax, or you're making enough money to pay tax revenue. The second piece of this is I think that if you if you do get that big that fast, it might be something to it might be within the realm of consideration to think about opening um, a subsidiary there or some sort of branch or partnering with somebody in that region, whether it's in Canada or halfway around the world to make your distribution of your product 
your human resources, your accounting, your marketing efforts, whatever that might be, not just easier and more streamlined for you, but, but to get somebody in your corner on that side of the border who understands the laws in the customary um, measures that companies take. But it's not just taxation. I mean, obviously, that's a big portion of this episode, and that's a lot of your specialty. But there's, you know, other considerations. You know, one thing I think we were talking about before we started this episode is, you know, it's what what do you do when, let's say, you're selling a product, and hey, cool, you're you're oblivious to even the laws in the country, I mean, let alone the taxation, but even just the general, go a step back, like the laws in the country. What if you're selling a product that here in the United States, it's totally fine, totally legal, no restrictions, but it's starting to enter a country where, okay, now this is illegal or there are major restrictions or it's not made to the, to a certain specification that the country mandates, you know, uh, how does that become and start becoming an impact, you know, in this process? Wow. That's a, that's a fantastic issue to be thinking about. And, and it's something where I'm, I'm not totally versed in the legalese of this, but I will say that uh, sort of two things. One, you're going to notice that things get more expensive for you as a manufacturer or as a service provider, whatever that may be. Um, But two, it's really important for you to be, again, I'm going to say this a lot, proactive about understanding the regulations and, and how those regulations are changing. And maybe like right now, even pandemic style, because international tax law is continuing to change a lot, especially because of how much more digitized, if you can believe it, we've become even in the last year, in the U.S. especially by necessity, um, the laws are changing constantly and regulations are changing constantly. One of the things that happened this year was people were completely were shut down and it was awful and sad for the economy. But at the same time, they looked around and heard birds chirping and saw roads getting cleaner. And I know this happened, especially recently in Italy, are starting to look around and say, OK, we really need to get serious about thinking about our carbon emission plan because we see the physical impact of what it looks like when we don't use the mis- we don't abuse the environment in this way and so the because things are changing so rapidly right now in that realm understanding what you can and can't do before you do it is really important um, i know in the us the irs doesn't like it when we ask for forgiveness they want us to ask for permission or they want us to consult somebody before it happens because without getting overly dramatic on this, although tax does feel that way sometimes, there are penalties. There are pretty severe penalties associated with doing the wrong thing. And it doesn't matter if you realize that you did the wrong thing or if you totally were, you felt innocent in the situation and just misread the law or didn't think that that could be a component of your your tax liability. There are, um, the in the US right now, they think a lot about multinational companies doing business with the, with each other or within the company overseas or over across borders. And if you fail to pay the government the correct percentage or their fair share, as you would say, there are some severe penalties, up to 40%, in fact, of um, the gross misuse. It's not the 40% of the, the difference that you owed, but 40% of the entire transaction. That's a lot of money, even for a small business. So it's not something to be scary, but rather... Um, something again to ask, please ask for permission instead of forgiveness in these, even if you feel like you are too small to be thinking about these issues. As you were in the field and as you were practicing and working with organizations in the taxation law area, you know, where 
where did you find that a lot of organizational leaders or just organizations were missing the mark or were, what was some of the most overlooked kind of things that you saw um, that could try to potentially help organizations right now? Companies who have branches within the same company overseas have to pay each other for services and goods and loans. So these are called um, intercompany transactions. They're related party transactions. I'm sure that's a term that's familiar to many of you. When you're interacting with another business who is not at arm's length, who is related in some capacity to you, like a parent company or a subsidiary, if you're crossing borders and transacting with a company in your same um, consolidation, your same network. So I'm the parent company in the US, you are the subsidiary in Canada, and I'm manufacturing goods that you are distributing for me in Canada. I have to pay you for those distribution services. And that is something that I think it's overlooked all the time and also is something that is really, really important for the government on both sides. And, and just to kind of take a step back from that. So take that example I just mentioned, I'm manufacturing something, I'm shipping it to you in Canada and you are distributing it, but we're the same company. I'm just in the US, you're in Canada. Uh, if I don't pay you for those distribution services in Canada, the Canadian government views that as revenue that that Canadian subsidiary is missing out on because the branch in the US is keeping the money. From, a, in, from an internal perspective, we think about it as, oh, it's the same company. It doesn't matter. But the government does not look at it like that. Um, and the government doesn't care if you're overpaying them. So if the transaction was flipped and the U.S. wasn't getting paid for those distribution services, the U.S. would care a lot. But Canada wouldn't care that much because they're getting to keep more money. Um, this gets overlooked, like I mentioned, all the time because it's it seems like something that shouldn't have to happen from a company level perspective, which is probably true, but absolutely has to happen at a government level. Yeah, because I mean, I, I think about it, I would have not thought of that because I think, oh, look, hey, I'm based in Texas, for example. I need to ship something to my subsidiary in, in uh, Indiana. Okay, cool. Just put it on a truck, send it over. All right, cool. They got it. Phone call done. But yet, this almost has to be like a business tra transaction within yeah. your company that allows it to be seen as a profit or loss. Yeah, it does have to happen that way. It has to be, um, it has to happen at what's called arm's length at the at an arm's length standard, which means it has to appear as though it were happening for, with a third party. So you have to be doing an equivalent with that. And there are ways, this is why tax planning, I think is really, really important at this level. It, there are ways that you can minimize the impact of this at, at the company level because most of the time there's a range. But this is this is the case for whether you're dealing with goods, manufacturing, distribution, goods, parts, manufacturing, services, loans, and intangible property. So the law covers all four of these. If you're loaning your subsidiary money, that subsidiary has to pay you an arm's length interest rate for that loan. If you are giving your subsidiary technology to use, manufacturing technology, know-how, trade secrets, even though it's the same company, from the government's perspective, you should be getting your fair share of the revenue associated with that so you can go pay your fair share of taxes. This is called transfer pricing, by the way. Transfer pricing, it mostly happens at the international level, but it does happen at the state level occasionally when we're talking about state tax, state sales tax. So, so now as let's say we, you know, we're, we're following the advice where we're getting our tax rep, we're, you know, making sure we're being proactive, uh, you know, in trying to 
get our bases covered. You know, how, how should an organizational leader who may not have an accounting background or a tax background, you know, approach these conversations or, you know, come into the, uh, into the conversation with their tax representative to make sure that, Hey, let's get on the same page. What do I need to do? Like, how do we get this conversation going? Yeah, that's that's an awesome question. I think, again, I'll go back to say this. I promised I would say this more than once. Um, have the conversation before the IRS has the conversation with you. And I'm not saying that the IRS will, will come get you if you're not doing this automatically. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm not in the position to say that at all. However, um, multinational corporations are under a lot of scrutiny, especially right now with, in, with their intercompany transactions because budgets are facing a lot of deficits um, in general jurisdictions want their fair share of revenue. So if your company gets audited, in my experience as a tax professional, one of the first things the company got asked to do was, was produce transfer pricing documentation. So, so don't wait until something bad happens. It probably won't, don't worry. Um, but in the event that it does, you really do need to have to be prepared. And in, in that mindset, I, I think it's very, very important for you as a leader, as an organizational leader to understand the company structure and to be able to answer the question, Hey, are we paying the Netherlands for the loan? Are we paying them interest on this money that they lent us last year? How long is that going? What's the documentation to support that that interest rate is an arm's length interest rate? So um, how did we come up with the cost of manufacturing that microphone? What do we have a, a good perspective of how we came up with the cost per unit of that of manufacturing that piece of equipment and just having a basic understanding and being able to trace that, those numbers, being able to, to have that documentation is, is really important. Again, this is not about a, somebody's coming after you. I think that this also is a very, very good strategy. Thinking about international taxation, international accounting in general is a very, very good planning strategy for you as a company to be maximizing your after-tax cash flow, as we say in tax, um, to be to be keeping as much money as you possibly can within the confines of the law. Because a lot of what I've heard from clients is that they're following the rules, but they could be doing more to keep money in their company in general to maximize tax um, tax rates in certain nations. In the U.S., it's actually pretty favorable. It didn't used to be at all, but now that we're at a flat twenty-one percent rate, it's it's a lot more competitive. So we have the ability to keep more money here. Um, and again, to, to be able to maximize our own, the money that we keep as a company. So this again, is not about you complying with, it is about you complying with the law. Of course it is, it always is. But it's not just about that. It's so much about you saving money and you being able to, to reuse money that maybe you were giving away without even knowing it. Since you live in this world, I mean, this is this is your wheelhouse and you're ingrained and very knowledgeable and, uh, you know, full of such wisdom. So I thank you for that. Uh, you know, uh, just kind of a fun question for you is, you know, as you sit back and look and see how uh, corporations and small businesses and, you know, major companies begin to spread out across the globe more and more, you know, what does that landscape look like? How do you see the globalization of, you know, like small businesses and how this impact, how much, I guess the better question is what impact will, will, international tax uh, begin to have on on smaller businesses as we look toward the future? Wow, yeah, a, a lot. And, and in ways that we might not think that they do. So, so an anecdote here is one of my favorite countries to work 
with when I was practicing, and I still love to talk about this country, just anecdotally when I'm teaching, Brazil. And I love Brazil is that when I was practicing public accounting, Brazil was literally creating their tax law as I was trying to help my clients enforce it in their companies. So I use this anecdote. So we're going, hey, Brazil, what is your international tax law? And Brazil's like, just a second, we're writing it right now. We'll get back with you. And our client in the U.S. is saying, can you help us understand what we need to do with this international tax law thing you are telling us we have to have? And so I say this because um, upcoming markets, we call them developing markets potentially, are very, very attractive. But it's important to understand one, that some of those developing markets think a lot about providing incentives for foreign investors, like Chile is a very good example of this. They're they're closer to developed than developing at this point, but their um, accounting law, tax law in particular, is very, very favorable to foreign investors. Other developing countries are not as favorable because they want to protect their own markets. But the more important piece is that they are still coming up with their strategy. They're still creating their laws. They're still creating their policies. They're still trying to dig into what it means to have a tax treaties and tariff and borders policies. And so I don't want to say it's not, it's, it's really, really not fair to say like, be patient, but, but be aware that the U S has done, has been doing this for a long time. And many countries are just starting to understand the implications of having foreign direct investments in their jurisdictions. And, and they ha- they're having to literally scramble to create that law. I always think that's so interesting because you think, well, of course they have the law. We do, but many of these jurisdictions are, are brand new at this. We think about all of that uh, Chinese investors very recently have been flooding to Africa as a very, very lucrative market, perhaps. However, you're not expecting many countries in that region to just have tax law, international tax law appear. So, so being generous with that thought process, I think is is very, very important um, because it sounds fun to take advantage of an emerging market, but you still have to understand the implications of that from their perspective. They're going to want your, their share of your tax revenue, but might not know how to get there. Again, Katie Metz, she's the senior lecturer at the Kelly School of Business, specializing in international taxation. Just want to thank you again for being our guest uh, on the ROI podcast. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.